This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance, uh, podcast 40-something, uh, 43, perhaps. Uh, and with me in Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hello. Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Good morning, John. <laughs> Hiroyuki in New York. Hi, John. Oh, hi, Hiroyuki. You guys are just terrible at saying hi. I, we're going to have a whole practice on this one day. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, so it's been a little while since we did one. Um, Omar Khan is going to try to get here. Uh, Varun Mater is going to try to get here. They had um, sudden changes of schedule, unavoidable. Um, but they want to be here, and I think I think they will probably um, find their way into this conversation at some point. Mm. Um, Johan, you you wanted to um, say something to begin with, yeah? yeah? I can just toss something out. It's not. It's more of a random grab of some kind. But but I can always begin and, and see where we end up. So I saw this uh, this discussion online with this Brett Weinstein, uh, and, and uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. I'm not really familiar with him, but he, he he's some kind of uh, discusses things from an evolutionary psych perspective and so on. Anyway, so so they had this argument uh, that this uh, this crisis propaganda situation we we find ourselves in place on an innate drive to conform in a particular manner, which I thought was an interesting argument. And I think this kind of adds to the discussion we've been having about propaganda and the manufacturing of consent for the, the last months. Uh, and so basically they, they mentioned this, uh, this experiment from the 1950s, which I'm sure everybody knows about. My, my, my father had even heard about it uh, in, in his uh, college years, where subjects were placed in this situation where something like 10 of their peers unbeknownst to the subjects would then unanimously agree on, uh, on absurd things, things which were apparently false, like that uh, the longest of two lines were actually the shortest and so on. Uh, and not everybody, not, not all of these test subjects agreed to everything, but, but almost all of the subjects would accept some absurdity as true, uh, ostensibly then because of some innate drive to conform or, or whatever. Uh, and uh, it, it was further argued in, in this uh, discussion, and I think this is a, is a good point, uh, that the, the myopic hyper-specialization we see in society today kind of amplifies this behavior, because very often we don't have the, the competence necessary to actually evaluate factual claims. Even if we may doubt some of the things we hear and see, we, we don't possess the critical tools to really know that they're false. So, even though, you know, there are no polymaths anymore. There are no really broad generalists around. Everybody's specialized. So we're not in this situation of the 50s test subjects when they're faced with patently absurd proposition and nonetheless conform because we, we are instead in this situation where we face statements that perhaps seem a little bit fishy to us but we can't really know for sure and we can't point out exactly what's strange about them. So most of the obstacles for conformism aren't really there. 
there are no critical checks and balances to counter these claims. So most people will quite reasonably, with regard to their lack of competence, simply conform to the narratives in place. And I think, I for one think that this is a, this is a central feature of the situation we, we find ourselves in today, and also a kind of key factor in the successful managing and manufacturing of consent. So, so uh, and, uh, and to counter this, I mean, we really would need this kind of salt of the earth generalists, people with, with uh, as we say here in, in Sweden, the peasants common sense, who know a little bit of everything and have a, a good intuition for what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. And we don't really have that anymore. Did you hear anything? Okay. <clears throat> um, does anybody want to comment? Well, that, 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 uh, that makes sense. I mean, it's, a, it's like an institutionalized uh, gaslighting. Uh, destabilization uh, that's in place firmly and functioning to um, push the uh, framework uh, onto the subject population. It, it's, uh, um, it's very effective. It's destructive too, because we don't know what's going on and they can do whatever they want. Yeah, you're dependent on no, the other guy's authority to, to at least to, to know anything in a sense. Mm. Yeah, I, I, um, <clears throat> this topic and, and, and closely related topics uh, seem to be coming up a lot in discussions I have with people. And uh, I know that we had intended, uh, I think, uh, to, to talk a bit about culture. And I, and I know that Varun wanted to do that. So maybe when he gets here, we'll segue to that. But um, Two things occurred to me this week, or or that I that I noticed this week. Um, one was the sense that, and and I guess this happened with the advent of, of the internet, with electronic media, and and how dispersed, um, you know, people's people's relationship to to the the dominant narrative had become. They 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 were absorbing the dominant narrative, the master narrative, if you will, but, but they were coming from these strange, customized, personally customized points mm. of view and, and, and positions. And, mm. and I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, if you, it's, it's, if I go to like a, a web page or I read a newspaper or magazine that I'm not usually going to read, um, uh, a movie fan magazine or something when you're sitting in the doctor's office and you have this kind of uncanny experience of, of thumbing through and seeing pictures of 27 different um, celebrities. So, you know, described as celebrities, as stars of this or that show, people who've appeared in this or that and not knowing, not recognizing a single one of the 27, not a single one. And it, it's slightly like it, 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 there's a kind of anxiety that goes with it because you have one of those, um, you know, living an alternate reality. It's a Philip K. Dick experience mm -hmm. kind of. Um, and, and 
I have that a lot in 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 subtler ways. I feel like I'm, there there are multiple worlds passing me by that I have that I have no awareness of at all. But the second thing is, and we can come back to that. The second thing is that that um, that doesn't preclude or change the um, the essential mm. effectiveness of of institutional propaganda. And I watched a show the other night. Um, the first couple episodes of an English show, a UK show that was a remake of a Swedish crime series called Before We Die. And it was a decent Swedish, you know, Nordic noir thing. And um, there are characters who were involved in quotation marks, the Balkan conflict, they're Croatian. And at some point, the inevitable um, photographs of, of ethnic cleansing and dead bodies in these rustic villages in the Balkans um, make an appearance in the story. And the two cops go, well, you know, the Serbian butchers came in and they weren't very, they didn't discriminate about who they killed. Now, I have yet to see, not once, not ever, um, a UK or American studio product in which the, the, the sort of mem of, of Serbian genocide heirs is not, is not repeated. It's always, the, the Serbs are always the villains, every single time. And it doesn't matter that all those stories that originally surfaced when, when Bill Clinton terror bombed Belgrade for 78 days, that all that stuff has been debunked, doesn't matter. The, the essential message um, was repeated enough that it has become uh, indelibly inscribed in public awareness, consciousness, that the Serbs were the bad guys and they went around butchering people. And that's that. So this is how many years later that, that uh, this series has made, you know, 20 years um, more. Uh, and yet, and yet that story persists. And that to me is very interesting um, because uh, uh, this happens on all kinds of levels. There was the, they were showing the, the, the Hemingway documentary that what's his name, that horrible guy made, that smears Hemingway, doesn't mention his leftist politics, doesn't mention the FBI hounded him for decades and so forth, doesn't mention his friendship with Fidel Castro, doesn't mention any of this. Um, it just implies he was, you know, um, neurotic, selfish, self-obsessed, um, closeted homosexual or something. I don't know quite what the message was, but, um, but it was an absolute smear. So this is how people, this is how a generation um, is going to grow up learning about Ernest Hemingway. It's how they're going to learn about, you know, um, U.S. NATO assault on the former Yugoslavia. It's going to be how they learn history. So, um I just wanted to go off on that for a moment. Um, the conformity thing, you know, is is complicated, um, and and you know there are certainly a number of psychological experiments besides, <clears throat> excuse me, the one that you that you cited um, to to reinforce that that truth that that. Um, 
you know, people will will um, would rather do almost anything than be stigmatized as somehow um, holding a, a, a an opinion that might open them to ridicule in some way or other. That is, just people can't abide that in the society. I mean, it's in the a society of consensus, and if you violate that, um, you're going to to tend to um, uh, <clears throat> to suffer the consequences. I don't know, um, Johan. Yeah, yeah. Not to take all the airtime here, but but in relation to what you say, I mean, it's like as long as the basic symbolic structure essential to the narrative is in place. You can have a, a, any number of, of unique uh, shapes and forms and, and types of packaging of, of the propaganda in, uh, in here. So, I mean, you can have a, a, like a plethora of, of the superficially unique approaches to the same material, and you will still have this uh, free choice of the market. Uh, so, so you'll have like the, something which precludes a unified cultural community at the same time emphasizes a deep conformism that is in, in perfect harmony with, with this market individualism of our culture. And that's a really interesting uh, perspective, uh, I think, yeah. Um, I read, um, this is, I'm kind of jumping around here. Um, but I read a thing in an English language paper that, <clears throat> excuse me, that covers Norwegian um, uh, news and the headline was uh, 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 eruptions. I think that was the word of 141 new COVID cases in this particular region of Norway, and it was accompanied by a slightly scary photograph, you know, of, of doctors and needles. Symptoms and a quick uh, Google search killed that uh, four people went to the hospital out of 141, only one to intensive care and none died. Mine was lurid and scary and um, meant to cause alarm and unease in people. And uh, you know, that happened exact mechanisms um, that create that kind of uh, fear mongering that has been going on for a year and a half now. I, you know, we talk about this every every time we have a podcast, and I still don't have an answer. Corey, did you want to say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm listening. I'm just. Um... I'm just sort of, I've been having a hard time struggling with all the aspects of the lockdowns that continue, um, even though over 70%, I think I just say the same things over again, even though in Ontario and I believe Canada, over 70% of people are now vaccinated on the, the restrictions and, and the measures, lockdown measures are not retreating. Everything's the same. Um, I mean, so much of the small business is boarded up. There's homeless people everywhere. People are really, really suffering fully and emotionally. And it's just been a really difficult time over here. So I'm just sort of struggling 
um, through with the, you know, with um, how this is affecting, you know, my own mind, my own, my family members, um, my community, um, just trying to, to deal with that, you know, on a daily basis, just trying to deal with basically one day at a time. And um, I'm trying to catch up on what's come out of the G7 um, on the, on what's going to happen this year with the financialization of nature at COP26. I'm just trying to catch up and I'm trying to find time to write, which has been really difficult the past few months. So. Yeah. Um, I noticed that Canada, that, that the most locked down countries in the world led by Canada are all Commonwealth countries, New Zealand, Canada, Great Britain, um, uh, Australia, and and I I think that's worth noting at some point. Yeah, um, and a big part of the Great Reset too is the um, um, quote unquote Prince Charles. What's it called? The Sustainable. What's his NGO called? The Sustainable Markets Initiative. That was announced by World Economic Forum. That's that plays a huge role, and people are are largely unaware of it. I've yeah. lost. Okay, I keep the the audio keeps going in and out for me. So, um, I think that um, I mean here in Norway, it, it, ostensibly things have kind of returned to normal, although. As I just mentioned, the headlines are constantly about new cases and so forth. And I still see people in masks, far fewer, but I still see people in masks. Um, and because I wanted to drive to Sweden, which ostensibly is open now, um, the, it, you know, they say, well, could, we've unlocked things. There's no restrictions. You can drive you know, across borders. You can drive anywhere in Scandinavia. It's okay. But then there's an article about when you return, the, you know, it's likely there'll be a, at least a two hour wait to get into the country um, because they have to check every car and check every pe people's ID and their, their health records and all of this stuff if they've taken tests. It's not mandatory that you do any of these things. You know, it's not, but they're going to make you wait and make the travel extraordinarily unpleasant. And most people I know think, oh, well, it's not worth it. I'm not going to go to my cabin in Sweden um, because I don't want to wait in a massive traffic jam. Two hours is a big traffic jam for Norway. People in Los Angeles won't understand that. But, um, and, and uh, you know, again, I don't think that's actually true because there aren't enough people traveling across the border, there aren't enough people in all of Norway to make for a two hour traffic jam, you know? Um, and there's 8 jillion border crossings. So that just, that it's patently not true. It just is impossible that it's true. Um, there won't be two hour waits. You know, there will be a, a checkpoint at some of the border crossings. And then at the bottom of this article, there's a little footnote that says, uh, if you travel back and forth, that's, it's simply being advised against. It's not a law. This is in the fine print at the bottom. Now, I already had sort of sussed that out, that it's unlikely you can be prosecuted or even fined for something that's something, if you do something that's not illegal, 
it's simply mm-hmm. ill-advised, you know. Um, so, but that's to me very interesting. All of this stuff just, you know, we've been doing these podcasts for, for several months, I think. Um, that's the another effect of the lockdowns that I've really lost track of time. Mm-hmm. It just has no meaning for me anymore. But anyway. Um, and, and we have said much the same thing and asked the same questions for the entirety of the life of these podcasts. Um, and yet, you know, not only does nothing change, but there is a increasing strange disconnect between the government, the media, and the population. There was a huge po- protest in London, hundreds of thousands of people. There's photographs of it massive protest not a single word from the guardian or the london times not a word they didn't cover it so um unless i missed something um which is possible but but you know these things are intentional and biden issued a statement the other day that he for 2022 he wants all newborns to be vaccinated (laughs) why would you do that what what possible in level of insanity is required um, to, to think that's a rational thing to do, even by the, the, um, the point of view of, of Joe Biden? Um, I don't know. And it's, it, it strikes, you know, fear deep in my heart to think about this. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But um, Anyone else with a, with a thought? Oh, Johan? Yeah, you know, when, when I was like 15 years old, you thought that the internet would mean the, the radical decentralization of information and news and, and that killing a story like the protests in the way you just described would be completely impossible. But it, it works the other way around, I think. When you have these, these platforms that completely centralize the flow of information. It's, it's completely trivial to, to, to uh, make a, a, a non-event of something that large. Um, <clears throat> I, I, yeah, I don't, I'm, you know, I feel oddly um, at, a, at a loss for words about much of this. I, I had a, um, I had a birthday party last week. I never have birthday parties, but I turned 70. Shocking number. And um, a lot of people came and a lot of people sent videos and, and it, was, it was all very nice. And um, late into the night, I, was, I had a long conversation with two people here, Norwegians, um, who were very smart, classical musicians who I respect and like personally enormously. I love their children. They're good friends. Um, but, but they pretty much um, accepted the, the narrative around this um, entirely and were terrified about um, COVID, about catching it um, and, and um, fully bought into masking and social distancing, thought it was all very good, thought the government did very well with it. Um, it's, it's a very strange phenomenon. I, I guess what I was trying to get at is that, is that we're, you know, we're two years into this or something, and we've talked about this for a couple of months and, 
what is becoming increasingly uncanny and, and um, disruptive to, to at least my psyche is that you can watch in real time the normalizing of, of all of these irrational beliefs um, that, that, you know, are clearly at the very least to be questioned. Uh, and you see it in the protests, you see banners in these protests, you see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets saying, you know, we are not afraid of the third wave of bullshit, et cetera, stop, we want our lives back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these people, you know, these are working class Britons and they're angry and, and they're turning out to walk the streets in protest. And yet it seems to have almost no effect. The, the media and the government continues on creating a narrative that is um, completely disconnected from reality as far as I can tell. Um, and and um, there was the, the National Basketball Association. Here's another example was have, have the finals right now or semifinals. And a player um, the, the most important player for the Phoenix Suns, uh, Chris Paul, um, had to sit out two games because of COVID protocols, because he had a positive test and because he wasn't vaccinated. Now, he wasn't sick. He wanted to play, but it didn't matter. So he puts in this X amount of time, a, a apparently arbitrarily arrived at amount of time. Um, and now he can play again. Uh, or played last night for the first time um, after missing two games. This sort of thing is, is um, it makes no sense. I can't, there's like, there's no way to make sense of it. Um, what is this based? It's not based on, on medicine or anything. So it's, it's um, that part of it is, is distressing because it's, it seems to already have become embedded in the culture into the, the cultural narrative now has absorbed these ideas. We are forever going to have um, emergency lockdowns. We are forever going to have um, these very extreme and urgent health advisories issued. And um, we are forever going to have government by decree, most importantly, we're not going to have um, a, you know, a, a democratic process of, of, um, of debate and, and, you know, informed um, discussion. It, it's, it's simply going to be, um, and, and it's going to be something that is extraordinarily unequal across the various classes in society. Um, the very rich continue to fly private jets and they're, they're not um, apparently um, required to do anything. So um, yes. I don't know. It's strange. Hey, John, yeah. Sorry, I think what um, Johan was saying as well about the control of the information, it's interesting that this is supposed to be the, you know, inf the age of information with internet that was supposed to be, you know, the future. And instead what we have disconnect from nature disconnect mm -hmm. from our own bodies now we have disconnect from reality right it's like a major disconnect at scale and it's um yeah it's just fascinating mm -hmm. to actually observe and, and terrifying at the same time 
But uh, historically, um, uh, things of this nature has been uh, uh, pretty common. Uh, if you look at slavery, uh, if you look at uh, uh, patriarchy, uh, uh, the way uh, 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 the inferiority of um, um, women is normalized uh, from many, many directions. People are being gaslighted and uh, that's normal. And uh, so we have uh, experienced uh, this sort of thing, but it's interesting to see it emerge. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's happening and uh, things are uh, uh, in place and uh, now it's okay to uh, exclude certain people, uh, certain ideas. And it's coming from this, this very, very weird, uh, absurd uh, uncertainty that include uh, blatant uh, violence and uh, uh, irrationality. Um, um, but this is really, really powerful. I mean, people used to lynch black people based on this. So uh, it's a scary thing, but it, it is, it is uh, like, you know, just Corey just said, it's, it's fascinating as well in terms of psychology and uh, uh, social, uh, economic, political um, uh, scapes. Um. Um, Johan? Yeah, I think disconnect is, uh, is a key uh, thing to consider here because if you disconnect people from different points of view, from other kinds of experience, you will probably be more apt to conform to, to the, the dominant narratives and dominant experience. If we assume this strong drive towards conformism, I think it helps to explain how otherwise rational, intelligent people might might uh, uh, like easily fall into accepting strange or irrational points of view. Because it's in practice so very simple to to put a simple algorithm in place in, in the social media and the digital platforms. It promotes content of a certain type and like down uh, discourages other kinds of, of content, well, you're, you're gonna very quickly get an equivalent to this uh, conformism experiment because almost everyone you will see, uh, almost everyone of your peers that you will see will say the same thing because the undesirable perspectives will be filtered out. So, so it's kind of simple in practice to achieve these kinds of results with the, these kinds of platforms and the tools, I think. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and, and um, that's what it feels like. See, I think that this is the somewhat hidden, semi-hidden uh, uh, effect of social media, of the internet in general, of smartphone communication, all of it. Not only Twitter and, and all the, but the entire algorithmic universe that people live on in um, 
and, and we're all affected by it in various ways. It filters out complexity, number one, but um, it, it, it does something that is secondary or tertiary, I think, which um, is much harder to, to remain aware of. And it, it's because everyone is, everyone is affected by these things. And um, suddenly you find yourself going days without having a particularly meaningful conversation because, because you are directed through a variety of subtle and, and hidden um, encouragements to go yeah. somewhere besides a meaningful conversation, to, to have a trivial superficial, childlike, infantile conversation. And I feel that all the time. I feel that people, um, you know, of course, this is Norway, which is a country that doesn't like to cause, um, to make a scene, you know, don't rock the boat. It is a kind of, um, um, people won't speak out in general, and they're rule followers. But that but that aside, even factoring that in, I find increasingly people will um, will have these kinds of uh, uh, conversations that are in the 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 end of the result of the conversation, the end, the resolution, whatever you want to call it, the conversation. We know where the conversation is going. It's predetermined before the conversation begins. Yeah, yeah. That's my experience of life largely these days. And um, it, is, it, is, it is familiar from all those 60s and 70s films that, um, that posited these worlds of, of um, robotic conformity and so forth. People yeah. are, are starting to resemble the fantasy androids they imagined from their childhood or something. I, I'm not entirely sure what it is, but, but I think the effect of um, the, the filtering out of seriousness and uh, uh, what you get in, it, it, what you get in place of seriousness or curiosity or questioning is, is like false consciousness is, is bad mm -hmm. faith, right? It's, it's, um, it's a pretend emotion. And I think it was Adorno that said, kitsch simulates emotions that don't exist. Yeah. Um, and and that's I'm even, that feels like he was a prescient comment. Um, he foresaw the effects of social media somehow. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Johan. Yeah, I, I just think, uh, at least in my view, uh, this innate resistance to triviality and conformism is, is kind of a common denominator between uh, at least proper journalism and art. And, and I was kind of curious. I also, I wrote a chapter on, on industrial music for a book uh, uh, looking into the history of, of certain central artists and bands. And it was like the, the central, the, the chief sin in their worldview or in their work was to be derivative. So they, they actively tried to fight against these, this kind of conformism. And I, I was just run, wondering if, if you, Corey and, uh, and Hiroyuki, if you have any, if you can like relate to, to this, uh, this counter conformism uh, kind of drive with regard to your own fields. I would be like, curious to hear about that. 
Well, the the most obvious thing in in the art world is that the uh, uh, things are really in the realm of corporate politics. It, the, the ideas are really domesticated, and uh, people totally operate uh, within that framework. And that probably comes from the fact that the uh, uh, institutions are funded by the same organizations that are funding. Uh, political institutions and th there is a uh, huge dynamics of um, hardening people to be in certain ways and uh, and this is really a, a good model to uh, think about other things as well uh, the uh, how people are put in this um, theater of uh, one corporate party and another corporate party, and they are operating within the same ideas of imperialism. And uh, uh, the ideas of dissent are packaged. And uh, um, the, the dissent that are not packaged and sold uh, by these outlets are uh, considered um, uh, not good. Um, considered as conspiracy, uh, considered to be uh, extremist in some ways, and um, uh, they just don't uh, uh, appear in the theater as a legitimate thing. So um, it is, uh, there is a sense of uh, 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 there's a sense of, uh, um, well, hopelessness, but it's it's not really hopelessness. It's it's a uh, uh, um, sense of resignation, sense of uh, uh, sense of detachment, sense of well, it, I guess it leads to this um, uh, denial of seriousness as well in, in some ways, unfortunately, and cynical uh, uh, tendencies uh, 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 to see things uh, uh, as uh, there's nothing you can do, you know? But, but I mean, isn't there something in the very practice of sculpture that inherently resists conformism in some sense? The, the um, resignation is a good word, by the way, um, for this. But, you know, what I see is uh, that a much of the impulse to nonconformity coming from uh, people who are creators somehow ends up being a form of conformity, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I did that interview with JP and Julie, the book of hours. Um, I was talking a little bit about that, and I've been thinking about it since, that um, opposition is digested, is absorbed and digested and turned into its opposite. This, ha this has happened for 60, 70 years, but it's, but it's much worse now. It's much more acute. And, um, and so I think that, that the, you know, the, the, the system is such, this, this we're trying to, we're circling around this description of some kind of algorithmic Stepford Wives universe. Um, 
and that is a you know an educated largely white um bourgeoisie and and we've talked about this before too but so they haven't disproportionate influence they they those kind of views reinforce the status quo and they're much more visible and they're repeated more often and um people hear them more often and the second thing is conversely those hundreds of thousands of people in the street protesting those points of view, those voices um, have have been told they are less important. They don't even aspire in the same way to being heard in the way they once did. But but those voices are very carefully filtered out, are very carefully weeded out and silenced and neutralized if they can't be silenced. Uh, and and so so. This is this is part of this strange disconnect that that I think one feels that I feel certainly um, because culture has come to mean something very different than it used to mean, um, and and the questioning of the status quo is something that that um, means something different. It's not that it doesn't exist; it just means something different. It's not a real questioning of it, you know. Um, I don't know, uh, but. Yeah, I'm Corey. Do you have anything? You're being so quiet. I, uh, the the conformity. I mean, pragmatism is a huge part of this, right? Now, if you're not pragmatic, I mean, that's at the core of it. You have to be pragmatic. If you're not, you're not. You know, you're sort of not welcome into the that champagne circuit. There's no room for any kind of dissent or um, questions at all. You know, you have to be. And comply and yeah and that's just um what was seen you can't even question anything or your conspiracy theorists right um it's incredible like you, you just can't question anything i couldn't quite hear everything you said johan because my audio keeps cutting out for some reason um but i wanted stuff today sorry a lot of stuff goes missed like your, um, Prince of Wales launches the Terracarda. It's called Terracarda. Um, and this is just new this year. And again, a, a lot of stuff that just um, because everyone's hypnotized by COVID, so much of this is happening with no oversight. And so the Prince of Wales in January um, launched a 10 point pandemic recovery charter. Um, that challenges businesses to put, quote, nature, people, and planet at the heart of global value creation over the next decade. And then it's backed by scores, major corporate high profile names, such as Unilever, BP, and BlackRock. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, a 17 page framework that sets out 100 broad actions for businesses to harness the resources and innovation, right? And it's like, basically, they call it the basis of the recovery plan, right? Which ties in everything with COVID. And um, this is all about, again, um, this is all about the finan- uh, making, replacing GDP effectively with um, the financialization of, of nature, social capital, human capital. Okay, so this is happening. No one's watching. No, no one gives a thought. Um, sorry, someone asked me not to swear, so I try not to, but that slipped out. Um, it... We're, just let me, there's a paragraph I wanted to read here. Um, yeah. One of the key actions um, initiated earlier this year is the creation of a natural capital investment alliance to help develop a quote unquote common language 
for natural capital investing with the target to drive 10 billion of capital allocation in this direction by 2022. So they're looking for basically 50 to $100 trillion, around $6 trillion a year into like basically saving um, the capitalist system from collapse um, by commodifying nature and every kind of capital that they can, including humans, um, like I said, social capital. And then it goes on to say, it aims to expand the flow of natural capital investment through corporate offsetting and carbon pricing. And that's being spearheaded by founding partners, HSBC, Pollination, Climate Asset Management, and then some others. So this is just happening really, really quickly. It's being put into place. It'll all be put into place by um, at COP26 this year. And again, you know, no one's no one's watching. All it's just mesmerized, hypnotized by the propaganda. And um, right, yeah, it's just it's just really really sad to see what's happening and and no one um, paying attention. That's that's the exact uh, the, the thing. That's the packaging, and that's the. Um, um, uh, the uh, labeling of the uh, what's acceptable and what's not it's it's amazing it's totally manipulative it's, um you know i'm sorry am i gonna inter- i don't want to interrupt you here okay. um, no, no, no. I, i'm just um yeah because one of the things i mean if we speak kind of culturally and artistically about the effects of these things we're trying to describe and um things that existed and were taking place pre-pandemic, but everything kind of accelerated the, the, the negative cultural impact of things um, in terms of aesthetics and, and, and psychological effects and, and pressures all accelerated during the lockdown, obviously. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I'm seeing, and I think this is something that it took me a a while to recognize there were there were these subtle kind of semi-conscious um, ideas that were semi-circulating in my in my barely functioning brain, and uh, there is an aesthetics that goes along with the lockdown, with the pandemic with the coerced obedience and with the lack of uh, travel and movement, which I continue to maintain has a a far greater impact on people psychologically than, um, than they want to admit. And it is an aesthetics of, of that, that has again, preceded the pandemic. It was already part of advanced capitalism and, a deteriorating in the United States, a deteriorating infrastructure and a loss of jobs and a desperation in, in the working class, loss of farms, you know, drastically increased homelessness, despair, you know, something like 25% of Americans on antidepressants, on and on and on. But then, but then the lockdowns exacerbated this enormously and so it's a it's an aesthetics of the denuded in a sense the the landscape i feel like people are actually i'm trying to think of an example and and it's very hard because i haven't fully articulated this to myself but it's it's almost like a fear an actual fear of things like forests and trees 
and a fear of the asymmetrical and the heterogeneous and, and um, people more and more find um, open, flat, dead landscapes and vistas more familiar and more comforting somehow. And uh, I would be hard pressed to give you an example of any of this, but it's just the sense that I, I have of how people create gardens in their backyard, how people, um, you know, remodel their interior of their houses or something. There's something that is accumulative in all of this that is, um, it is the aesthetics of, of morbidity. I don't have another word for it, but it's, it's, it's a tendency toward um, the reductive and the removal of anything uncertain and concrete and, mm. and certainly the removal of the unfamiliar and not easily identifiable. It's a removal of that which can't be weighed and measured very clearly and accurately. Um, and it, part of it is, I think, the unconscious identification with machines that people increasingly want to be the machines that they rely on somehow. Either that or they actually want to have robot overlords take over the planet. I've been thinking that recently. It's not a fear of our robot overlords. It's, um, it's a desire for them. But I could be wrong. I don't know. Well, that sounds really interesting. It sounds like uh, you're describing general tendency of uh, self-preservation, some sort of um, uh, escape from what's going on. But at the same time, the, the path is somehow leading to conformity. Uh, uh, the, the conclusions and the path people are generating are operating within the, uh, the, the system that's uh, causing the, uh, uh, the predicaments at the, at the beginning from the, the um, at the core of it, it it's um, um, so it, it, it totally makes sense and um, um, and it's a, again this is a difficult thing to talk about because we don't share the uh, common ground if you are standing with the uh, uh, system standing with the establishment uh, there are certain things you can't really talk about um, well, you know, it's also, uh, somebody said to me oh, a year ago, pre-pandemic, I was writing something about Jackson Pollock or something, or I was on social media answering a question about contemporary painting. And, and he said, oh, you know, I used to, I used to love Jackson Pollock. And it was, you know, it was expected that we all worship at the altar of abstract expressionism. But now I think I, I was just faking it. I, I really like, um, you know, and I forget who we mentioned, Thomas Eakins or somebody. And I thought, well, that's very interesting um, that you doubt your own experience of something. Something has led you to, to suggest you were faking your, what does that even mean? You know, um, you had this emotion, you know, it's like, I don't know. But, but what's interesting is that 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 the um, that this this 
aesthetics that I'm trying to point toward or, or describe the contours of somehow is also finds expression in, um, in language, in text, um, in the way in which people talk. Um, it's, it's also a visual uh, corollary to, to Twitter and, and Instagram and, um, and simply the, 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 you know, the ubiquity of marketing campaigns and, and the, the, familiar, the, the familiarization, but normalization of, um, of, of the fact that we know there are very um, manipulative advertising campaigns directed at us all the time. And people don't even blink about that. It's part of life. You wake up knowing that you're going to have um, the you know, massively researched ad campaigns directed at you. And, um, and, and so it's an aesthetics of that. Um, it, it's part of the, it, it, it's an expression, we're finding the, <clears throat> the aesthetic expression of anti-communism as well, in a sense. Um, of the of the the sort of revanchist colonial uh, tropes that are that are surfacing again and again and again. God, I see in advertising constantly the echoes of colonial um, kitsch, in a sense, the the cartoon colonial stuff that at one time a lot of people fought very hard to get rid of, um, returning, and it's returning is like cute, you know blackface and, and black people eating watermelon is now ironic and it's cute or, um, you know, Stalin and Lenin and Mao are, are design elements. They aren't historical figures anymore. And so they're incorporated into this aesthetics of the denuded that I'm trying to describe. Anyway, I don't, I, I, you know, it's something I hope to, to write a blog post about. And I tried to touch on it in that blog post about anti-Semitism and, and Heidegger's black notebooks that, that somehow, um, somehow the, the, the denazification of Heidegger continues and everybody seems to be fine with it, you know? Um, and I was thinking about, because, because the reality of things like slavery, the reality of pogroms um, that didn't just happen in Germany um, in, in the 1930s. I mean, there was a horrifying one in Lithuania, um, I believe it was Lithuania, um, at, um, at this town in which all the Jewish men were, were brought to the town square and beaten to death with an iron pipe and then piled in the town square. And the, the leading, the guy who was like, what was he called? The death dealer. He climbed on top of the pile and played the national anthem on his accordion. Now that level of depravity and horror um, is cleansed, is, is removed, a filter. I like this word filter. It's filtered out of, it's algorithmically removed so that what you get instead is the kitsch um, reductive cartoon version of, um, you know, the Showa or whatever you want to call it. Like, oh, you know, the, the genocide is this thing that we can use as a design element, but that's, but, but that we can't 
it's unseemly to talk about the details somehow. I don't know. I don't know. I'm free associating here. Feel free to interrupt me, um, anybody. <laughs> that, that, that's been uh, happening, I think, in many ways uh, to uh, uh, reduce the uh, um, significance of uh, historical events into uh, uh, just words text uh, narrative that doesn't have that doesn't affect you that it's removed from your life it, that's something that happened in the past here and there and uh, and that, that's been happening the, the historical I mean uh, the educational system has been doing that a lot I think uh, they would teach about history they would teach about events uh, significance of uh, things that shouldn't be. But at the same time, you can't talk about things that are actually happening right now because those things are, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And they're treating, I mean, the corollary of that, I suppose, is that they're treating things that are happening right now as if they happened in the past. Right. Um, mm -hmm. there, is, there is that aspect to it too. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, but it, it seems like this is the same thing as uh, Adorno spoke of in the 1940s, like... How, how this uh, we have a culture that's actively reproducing some kind of unlife and that what we're seeing here is some kind of embrace of a culture of alienation uh, and aesthetics of alienation and rootlessness for some reason of self-preservation it seems like this is what you're talking about <clears throat> yeah i th i think um i think in a sense that's right um, and, you know, I think, I think there were certainly people who anticipated this. I mean, Dor Adorno and, and some of the, the Frankfurt writers, and I was reading this really kind of wonderful essay by, by Herman Brock on Kitsch that I had never known about. Um, but, but certainly a lot, of, a lot of writers and even recent ones, in, in even Seabold and people like that, um, have... have have talked about um, about this this haunting um, and and uh, this subtle haunting feeling they have uh, ab about a, uh, the retreat of uh, deep passionate experience. Mm -hmm. There is a there is a sense of the dilution um, of our emotions somehow and uh and and this goes back you know 60 70 80 years so it's it's um it's only now becoming so so extraordinarily accelerated and um and in that sense the pandemic and the lockdowns and and this manufactured kind of consensus among a certain class anyway, and certainly in media about things like face masks and social distancing and so forth, um, is, is the perfect, um, this gets very Rene Girard-like, but it is the perfect um, uh, necessary event to restitch the fabric of society in some, again, artificial way. We're talking about the artificiality of artificiality. I mean, it becomes really slightly cuckoo and mind bending, but um, 
but you know it's like if the pandemic didn't happen there would have been another pandemic there would have been something because because the great reset's not going to happen without it it has no traction at all without people being locked down um and and uh, you know, I saw this extraordinarily um, irritating uh, lecture by Simon Critchley, who's an extraordinarily irritating guy anyway, but never mind, um, about the, the feeling that the lockdowns have brought on this kind of um, lockdown mysticism, you know, a sense of the ascetic, uh, monk-like. And, uh, you know, I have noted this too, and, and other people have noted the rituals of, of, of the vaccine taking, the symbolism of needle penetration, the symbolism of swabs up your navel cavity, um, that, that there is a kind of sense of um, the hope for redemption and renewal that comes out of this. I sense that a lot of people have accepted, um, and again, fewer people have accepted this probably than we realize. I think more people are highly distrustful of it than we tend to think of, but that, that a lot of people have just wanted to get through it because they believed that at the end of the lockdowns and restrictions and vaccines and all of it would be a great, uh, renewal of optimism and and growth and hope and all of these things that they have longed for for um, several decades probably, and of course it's not going to happen. It's not ever going to end. Not really. Um, there will be minor theaters of restriction uh, that continue probably indefinitely, and that's going to lead to a certain. Um, a certain sense of, uh, of not just disappointment and despair, but I mean, a certain sense of futility, I think, and frustration that will breed another aesthetics, you know, another sense of, and it may be, you know, a, an aesthetics of self-flagellation in some way, because I can't imagine there is another step past where we are now, but I don't know. Um, anyone? I have this, uh, is that myself I hear returning from your speakers or did somebody else say something? <laughs> I, I have this hypothetical scenario which maybe can connect into all of this. Uh, do you hear me okay? Yep. Okay, cool. So, so let, let's just, if all of you imagine that you're, you're one of these controllers in our global late stage techno capitalist society, and you have like massive amounts of resources and capital at your disposal. And you're also this pragmatic believer in, in mainline Western secular progressivism, meaning that you have your existential hopes affixed to, to this high-tech future where humankind conquers the universe and that's something like uh, space colonization or trans evolutionary transhumanism is the path to salvation and so on, or at least the, the desirable continuation of history. Uh, so given these assumptions, if you then add the fact that uh, economic growth and resource consumption at current rates will mean the end of this level of industrial civilization before we have the technological basis to colonize space. I mean, basically, 
the, the situation is that there are too many of these useless eaters around for your, your Mars colony to materialize. And we really would need like a handful more generations to work on these things. Uh, as an aside, I mean, I, I've researched uh, resource issues for, for more than 10 years and the data suggests that with this level of consumption, we're not going to be able to maintain this, this high-tech level of complex industrial civilization. And what we need, really would need would be a, a soft rollback to a more localized steady state economy and so on. Anyway, that's a problem for you controllers because you want this Mars colony. You want people in the Alpha Centauri system. You, you want this Star Trek fantasy and population <laughs> numbers are in your way. So, so what, what are you going to do in this situation? You're going to have to reduce the population over time and you're going to have to take a firmer grip on the available resources. And then the question is, what would then be the least disruptive and the most painless ways to go about this? I mean, you could have wars, you could have actual pandemics where people really die in vast numbers, but that's, that's very disruptive and it's extremely messy. So, so what you would need would be like to get a, a control grid in place to manage production and consumption in greater detail. And you need a way to relatively rapidly, but subtly reduce the replacement rate of the population. So you can kind of cut the numbers drastically in about 50 or 60 years. And then you would have a whole different outlook on the entire resource situation, saving the future of mankind and all that. But what you can't do is like outright say that we need to reduce population numbers because Western industrial civilization has outgrown its resource base and won't be able to propagate itself throughout the universe according to your power fantasy, unless we like kill off vast numbers of poor and colonized peoples. I think that's, it's an interesting, there's some interesting food for thought here, however you turn, turn this around. I mean that that goes totally um, uh, seamless with the uh, the trajectory of capitalism as well. The uh, exploitation and subjugation of the uh, populations uh, in order to perpetuate the uh, this massive uh, feudalistic structure, and um, so. Um, yeah, because the end yeah. goal is like to self perpetuate the system in some sense, right? Right, I mean, the extreme uh, uh, sense of uh, the feudalistic uh, structure, you know, you, 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 I mean, if it's too much to uh, keep it going, um, you just, you know, uh, cut it yeah. down. It, it, it just reduce the, uh, the whole thing into something more manageable. Yeah. So it's not a drastic departure from the uh, capitalist uh, system uh, we've been having. I mean, the, 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 what the Western hegemony has been doing to, for example, like to Africa has been totally uh, in line with what you just described. Um, yeah, let me just add that, that I think it's important to know that the, the Mars colony and the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos fantasies are ex just infantile, right? I mean, they're not even <laughs> remotely realistic or anything. Um, they're just like very rich guys with the very big toys. And, uh, and so that's one thing that, that the utopian vision is not something arrived at through a collective 
discussion and debate. You know, there is no, there is no elevated discourse to which people are, yeah. you know, there's just two rich guys who decide I want to go to Mars. Yeah. That's like so cool. And, and I, you know, I've got enough money that, you know, we can just, we can just play with it endlessly and that'll be really fun. Um, but, but I think that one of the problems with, because we can't afford we, the earth, um, you know, there are not enough resources for the continuing manufacture yeah. of new smartphones every six months and all the other things that go along with deep sea mining and, and, and the rest of it. Um, but it, but that reality gets turned into its own um, uh, kind of neo-colonial uh, cartoon narrative that that is essentially what you see with with the Ehrlich overpopulation um, people. It's 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 like it's you know it's extraordinarily childish critique of things um, because it's more complicated, but. But the ruling class, the people who make decisions, the unelected billionaires who exert extraordinary influence on, on world governments, these people are not the best and brightest. You know, they're just the richest. And um, they have no unique insight into anything. In fact, most of them are probably borderline, you know, sadistic psychopaths or sociopaths. Um, and I don't think you get to be that rich if you're not sociopathic, frankly. But that. <laughs> well, that, that's a, that's a uh, inherent uh, contradiction uh, of the whole thing. Uh, if uh, they want to control everything by controlling the institutions, uh, they will reduce the uh, effectivity and the productivity of the uh, institutions. The institutions are going to be destroyed because. If people who are serious about anything in their fields and pursue their pursuit with material reality, they must go against this feudalistic view. And there will be conflict between uh, those professionals, uh, experts who are really pursuing uh, things in their field, like the, 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 the medical experts who are speaking, speaking up about the uh, facts, those are uh, deleted, those are ignored. And those people have tremendous credentials. They, they do seem to know what they're talking about, but the institutions uh, do not allow that. Right, right. Well, there's a there's a default system of editing, right? Of of editing of discourse, public. Right, and it's very dangerous. It, yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about the whole uh, trajectory of the species, and but, uh, I mean, Corey has has you know the and everyone you know everyone should read the wrong kind of green, yeah. um, from start to finish because right. Uh, I think, I think there's just so much obvious factual uh, reportage in there about these, mm. the economic systems at work and, and the forces at work. Um, and, and 
uh, undeniable facts that are that are very carefully ignored in, um, in, <laughs> in mainstream media and stuff. And that's that's one of the problems is you know people's addiction to um, to to this information system that is completely been co-opted. Uh, and this is not new stuff. You know that's what I find remarkable. You know, I was talking about this shit when I was 18. That's a long time ago. Um, nothing, nothing has changed. It's just gotten worse. Mm. Yeah, Corey, speaking of Corey. I just, um, you know, um, adding on to what Hiroyuki was speaking of, of institutions and what you were just mentioning about co-optation. I've noticed a new thing that's sort of happening over the past 10 years since actually COP15. There's... Um, Momentum now, the capitalists, um, the leading capitalists of the world and institutions have found, I see um, a new thing sort of cutting out the NGO. The NGOs become redundant and they've been, and I see them now creating their own, um, their own NGOs, like their own, for instance, Master, I believe it's MasterCard, Salesforce and World Economic Forum have created an, um, an entity, I guess it's called an NGO, um, Uplink, right? To sort of trawl the, the youth of the world, right? It's another forum to, um, to capture the youth voices going forward for this anti-life um, reset agenda. And so, yeah, I mean, why they no longer need Greenpeace or 350 or whatever to do what they've done as of Greenpeace and 350 and World, um, World Wildlife Fund and all the rest, people have worked, they've worked on, you know, this whole idea of together for the past 10 years, like conditioning and social acceptance of, of capitalism, um, under stakeholder capitalism, hand-holding with the corporations working together. I mean, you see it um, over and over again, together, 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 right? It's in all the branding, all the storytelling, all the messaging. And so that's something I see is, is them, eventually the NGO will become obsolete. It's not required anymore especially after this year when they're able to put so much of what they've been working on over the past um, decade or two into legislation. There'll be less need for the NGO and the storytelling. It's been, I mean, the conditioning has, and normalization has been underway for some time. It's been effective. It's, it's worked, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily effective, and that's and yeah. Like a third of twenty-one is the business roundtable. That's the. I mean, the business roundtable is American. That's one of the most powerful movements against labor over the past. When did I think it was created in seventies or eighties? Anyway, that's one of the major forces that worked against labor. And now that's the American arm, as I said before in our podcast, it's the American arm of the Great Reset. So you've got all these all these entities now creating their own groups, their own movements, quote unquote movements, right? Everything can be commodified, including movements. And like you said, every single thing that comes up is quickly turned into the opposite of, of what it is. Um, yeah, I think that... that 
one of the things that surprises me, maybe it shouldn't, um, is, is the last time I was in Los Angeles, um, right before the pandemic, um, I drove around a lot looking at all the homeless encampments and, and they're massive, right? I mean, just massive. And there's homeless tents parked on lawns virtually every street in Los Angeles. I mean, there's a lot more people than, than the official figures suggest. Now, it, it strikes me as kind of surprising that that many people put in that desperate and dire a situation have not um, caused more of a problem, have not organized more even spontaneously to, um, to resist uh, uh, the police shakedowns and the forced movements and the harassment, um, because there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of people who would be very sympathetic and take their side in some sort of resistance yeah. to um, the system that put them there, but it doesn't happen. And um, that's, that's a topic for a, an entire podcast probably, or, or more, um, because that gets back to the psychology and, the, and the, the, the way in which narratives are being constructed to explain what we're going through and, um, and to hide the effects that everything related to the last few years has had on people um, because I think it's really acute. Anyway, um, we've had a very unstable internet tonight and all kinds of technical problems. So I'm hoping this was, has gone okay uh, recording wise. But um, if anybody has final thoughts, um, share them. And I'm hoping Varun and Omar will be back um, next time. Uh, yeah, Johan. Yeah, I just uh, thought back to this. You, you spoke of the, the the aesthetics of alienation, and maybe this is really naive, but I mean, in spite of all its obviously detrimental effects, I, I still think there's something hopeful in this kind of cynical embrace of an aesthetics of explicit alienation, because I, I can't, can't help feel that people are attracted to this because it seems honest to them that it seems to give them a people of the picture of the world as it really is. And, and as such, I think there's something paradoxically hopeful in people approaching this stuff, if for no other reason than that they find some, something true here. I don't know what right. you would think. I, I think I, I agree, and that should be uh, emphasized because uh, the, the you know the the the, the, the resistance uh, takes shapes, and uh, mm. um, and the pragmatism and uh, the codification of uh, draconian measures would bend those things. But at the same time, they are there, and they are doing something and manifesting, and th that's something uh, we should not. Uh, um, uh, deny or uh, uh, dismiss. Uh, I think that sort of relate to the uh, discussion about art, uh, abstract expressionism being uh, um, the tool of the uh, US empire. But at the same time, there is something to it. There is honest um, uh, 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 momentum to connect 
to humanity and nature. Um, so this is this is a this is a tricky thing. We, we we are forming something. We are searching something. We are talking about it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I um. I would like to feel less pessimistic than I do. Um, and, and at my better moments, I, I'm not pessimistic, but um, it has been a very, the, the restrictions have been much harder for people in ways that are not easily recognizable. That's my theory. And I think lack of travel, lack of movement, lack of, even if you don't usually take trips anywhere, knowing that you can't has an effect on you. You know, it's the foreclosing of possibility and it is, it has sort of symbolic echoes um, in other ways. Anyway, yeah, Johan? No, that was what I said. That was what I had. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, listen, um, I'm going to wrap up here. I'm sorry, I'm chewing candy. It's really horrible. Um, recording the chewing of my candy. Um, <laughs> but I want to thank everybody, and hopefully um, uh, Varun and Omar are back next time. And it'll probably be, I hope, less of um, an interruption um, time between these things. But I want to thank... Um, Corey, Hiroyuki, Johan, and Jack Littman back in LA, who um, gets all of this stuff, this stuff up on um, SoundCloud for us. So, okay, I will talk to you all soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. All right.